because otherwise like i'm just shocked by like people are like it's kind of this thing like oh i don't have time or i can't sacrifice for like um and then like you actually do a time on it and they're like watching netflix for 12 hours a week and they like oh i'm so <laughs> hey what's up everybody welcome to responsibly reckless the show where we talk about how to thrive in uncertainty and live life without regret advice is contextual and what works for one person may not work for you So we'll talk to top performers and dig into why they make the decisions they do, giving you the tools you need to pick the right advice for your unique situation so that you can build your version of a successful life, not somebody else's. Today's guest is a partner at a West Coast venture capital firm that's raised over a half a billion dollars in investment funding. My buddy who we're interviewing is big on privacy. So we're going to go ahead and call him Sean throughout the episode. In this episode, I talked to Sean about a variety of different topics, ranging from things you should think about before getting into venture capital, how to be a more effective decision maker, a new way of thinking about friends and friendships in your life, how to build a life that is your version of success that can minimize regret, what to do when your values come into conflict, and much more. So hop in, enjoy, and let me know what you think. Hey, what's up, man? How's it going? Pretty good. How's your weekend? Long weekend? Awesome. Yeah, it's been good. I'm excited to have you on the show. And there's a lot of stuff I want to dive into, ranging from your VC work to relationships to some of your interesting lifestyle choices, like not drinking, being a digital nomad and stuff like that. I know that you're pretty big on privacy, so I'll try not to say your name while we're talking. And <laughs> and related to that, I know that you have pretty good reasons for why you're super into privacy and kind of off the grid. I'd be interested in hearing like what some of your reasoning is because I know a lot of people are really big on social media, social media presence, branding, but it sounds like you find enough value or a lot of value from doing the opposite. And I'm someone who's similar, not super big on social media. So I'd love to hear your reasons for kind of being off the grid when we live in a society that's so on the grid. Yeah. So it's interesting. I have always kind of had an addictive personality. So when I think Snapchat and Instagram came out, I kind of got a little too into it. And um, I didn't really like the person I became. And, um, I'm also someone that is kind of ADHD. So, uh, having those apps on my phones and being in those ecosystems didn't necessarily serve me. Um, and so I actually ended up moving, uh, to Germany and, um, right before I moved, uh, I don't know why I did this. I, I both stopped drinking and turned off all my social media and it ended up being like the best year in terms of mental clarity and peace. And so, uh, I do think, uh, you know, more people are about this now, both for reclaiming attention and stuff like that. But I don't think it had any effect on my social life at all. If anything, it created stronger bonds and friendships with people. Um, I'm certainly out of the loop. Uh, like, you know, I don't have the latest dankest memes and I may uh, not know exactly what an acquaintance or a friend is up to. But um, it was kind of not being on social media and then not um, 
not, you know, just wanting to be a more private person. I think if you're like a niche celebrity for work, like I think that makes sense and there's certain benefits there, but just think, think like personally, um, notoriety and discoverability um, has real downsides, uh, both um, from safety perspectives. I think that in some cases it can um, foreclose opportunities. And so I think that's kind of why I haven't really promoted myself. I haven't had the need to in my career or personal life. And I've just kind of stuck to those principles because I've enjoyed uh, having that uh, privacy and just being away from social media. I think you touch on a couple good points where one thing that you talked about that I've experienced myself is that a lot of people have the fear like, oh, if I drop off of social media, I'm not going to be in the loop. I'm going to lose all these relationships I have with people. But similar to you, I found that I actually deepened a lot of the important relationships in my life where like you, for instance, like you get to spend time with a lot more of your like really close friends who really build up your life. Like I consider you someone like that versus like trying to stay in touch with every single person possible. And you have these very shallow relationships and also mm -hmm. just the science behind these apps where they just kind of give you this dopamine rush that you get addicted to. And then all of a sudden you feel really empty when you're not on these apps. And like you said, your year away from the alcohol and the apps was actually one of the best years of your life. And that's something that I'd recommend to a lot of people to challenge your assumptions and kind of face this uncomfortable spot in life where you step away from everything and create the room for you to really learn about who you are, what's important to you and your values. So like, I'm, I'm super on board with what you did. And I, I think that that's something that more people should do to get to better know themselves. Yeah, it didn't really have, there's this um, inertia or fear you have of leaving it in terms of what will happen in my social life. That's probably an objection. Another thing is just like, how do I stay in touch with friends? Um, and what I find is that, um, yes, you have to be more intentional about your friendships, right? Um, but I would argue if your life is kind of scrolling and then um, kind of staying in touch with random people or feeling FOMO from that. It's not really intentional. What I found is that once I left like Facebook, Insta and all this social stuff, um, one, you just communicated over text and two, it created stronger bonds with people. And a lot of like acquaintances kind of wash out because yeah, you won't see that they went on this crazy hike and then ping them about it. But with other friends that you really want to keep in your life, you end up building routines and um, ways to reach out. And they also know the people that want you truly want you somewhere and don't just want to tag you in a social media post or, uh, uh, or be more transactional or really great about reaching out as well. So it ended up actually being a huge positive for my relationships. It reminds me of one of my favorite books, Essentialism, which the whole premise is basically just boiling life down to its essentials. And I think, it's related to what you're saying, where when you kind of trim these fringe things out of your life, it helps you realize what's most important to you and also form deeper relationships with these few people in your life who share your values, who you're extremely close with. There's an opportunity cost in everything where we only have a certain amount of time in the day, a certain amount of energy. And if you're spreading yourself too thin, 
you're not going to be able to build those deeper relationships with people who can become lifelong friends. I know that for me, I'd rather have one to three like diehard friends who I'm like, this person truly gets me than even say a thousand shallow friends who we just all tag each other in memes. And that's not to say that everyone has to uh, immediately drop social media. It's just something to think about and to know that there's pros and cons and everything. Yeah. Uh, friends are there for a season, a reason, or a lifetime. And there's very, very few friends that fall into the last bucket. The best other framework I have, um, I've read Essentialism and definitely like think it applies a lot to careers, but um, uh, the best analogy I heard is like there's beer friends, there's wine friends, and there's whiskey friends, right? So beer friends are exactly what they sound like. You can go catch a game with them. Wine friends are someone you might invite to your home to like have a dinner party with your friends. And there's whiskey friends who... If you have a dog shit day, you know, you pour out a glass and um, drink with. So I think um, what it, without social media, I think with social media, you have a lot of more like beer and wine friends um, that allow for more activity. So you tend to feel, uh, and I think it's particularly great if you, if you haven't practiced being alone, um, but if you're kind of comfortable, what it let, it led to stronger relationships. A lot of my friends who are, Wine friends became whiskey friends because it was really intentional about, I want to hang out with you. Uh, it did whittle down my beer friends. So, you know, I probably missed out on a bunch of parties and things that I would have been invited to. People had, you know, known I was around or stuff like that. But um, overall was, you know, looking back now, I think like, yeah, almost like seven, eight years since that decision. Um, you know, it was, was, just a, it was just a great decision. Yeah. And I think doing that really takes a leap of faith where it can be pretty nerve wracking before you make this switch in life where we have our social circle, these people we're close to, and we also have our values, the person we want to become in life. And some of our friends bring us closer to the person we want to become. Some of our friends, we love them, but maybe they have habits that contradict our values. And you're in this interesting situation where it's like, Am I going to continue to do what I do because I love my friends and I want to spend as much time as possible with them? Or are you going to take the leap of faith saying, I have this image of the person I want to become in life and I'm going to become that person and trust that the right people will stick around. And I think that, like you said, some wine friends become whiskey friends and you lose some beer friends, but I think it's going to be polarizing in life. It goes back to the having some diehard friends while losing friends. You want to be your truest self and attract people in situations who fit that life. That way you're not wasting energy being someone you're not. And I, I think that that's something that you're embracing that more people should try to embrace. Yeah. Have you, uh, Alex Hermosi, who's like an internet entrepreneur, has a great YouTube video on this. It's like why losing friends is normal. Mm -hmm. um, that if you haven't um, heard about, um, or, or watched, I highly recommend, but yeah, very, very similar, um, takeaways. And so, yeah, but it's, it's overall, I think, um, again, more and more intentional way to, to approach friendships is I think and more authentic to, to who I am at least. Yeah. And, and related to that, I think that intentionalism and authenticity is great, not just for friendship, but towards life. One thing we'll talk about on this podcast is awareness, proactiveness versus reactiveness. And it's important to ask yourself, am I being intentional with how I spend my time and my days? Or am I just bouncing from task to task? Because again, we have this image of the life we want to live. 
when you're proactive and intentional, you're getting closer. When you're reactive, maybe you're getting closer, but you're going to be taking a lot of detours too. So just being more clear and conscious of what you're doing with your time and energy. Yeah. And related to the, the beer friends, wine friends, and whiskey friends, I think that's a good segue to the, the no drinking. That's something that I'm on board with, but I know that a lot of other people don't necessarily practice or do, especially in a lot of our societies that we live in. So I'd love to hear like why you do it, kind of what prompted you to do it, and your journey through it. Because I know that that can be maybe a tough transition when you're first starting. Yeah, I am. Um, so I again, I, I cut out alcohol a couple of years ago, and then I have gone on and off. I went two years almost straight without drinking, uh, then drank for a year, and then kind of did it on and off. COVID, I think I started back up again. There wasn't much to do, but um, for the last six months, I've been kind of doing it. But I've, I've gone, you know, almost two years at a time, then one year at a time, and now, you know, just you know, not drinking. Um, uh, it, it's so weird. I, one is like, um, it, it's just terrible for you. <laughs> like it, it is, it's, it's like a toxin. Um, and so there is really, really good research coming out now, um, that shows it, uh, is cancerous. It, uh, puts your hormones in state. It makes you prone to stress. It makes you feel terrible. It kills brain cells. It significantly reduces your, um, your, you know, reduces your lifespan. Um, there's a great, uh, podcast on this. Um, Andrew Huberman, who's a Stanford, uh, uh, you know, PhD in physician goes through how bad it is. And there's now increasing research where everyone's like, Oh, I'll drink wine, <laughs> you know, have a class a day. And there's actually all this research, which is like that all is bullshit. Um, which is like, you know, shout out, like there's a lot of shit that isn't like, um, out there about, you know, the effects of reservatrol, et cetera, stuff like that, that aren't, um, like dose dependent studies. So like they didn't reduce it down to 200 milligrams and see if you could get the same benefits. And actually now that research starts to coming out and it's just awful for you. So that's one. Two is just like, I, I think people can resonate. This is just like, um, it is just an awful, you know, hangover, um, like it makes you feel terrible. You lose a lot of time. And uh, for someone like, I don't know, I, I value my time a lot. So that ended up be, being this. The other thing is like this kind of litmus test, right? Like if you're with friends and the only thing you can think of doing is drinking, are these people really your friends? Like have you tested that you have shared values or even shared things you want to do? And what I found is like um, a lot of people um, – use drinking as an excuse for a personality. And it's deliberately, you know, uh, provocative because <laughs> again, like if you're in a friend group and you can't think of things to, and, and there's an element of like, yeah, you want to just talk and chill. Um, but in that case, like, you know, why can't you just drink like bubbly? There's no reason for alcohol necessarily to be there. I find it just, is this accompaniment and an excuse for people to, Oh, I'll go to a nice cocktail bar with friends or whatever. Um, versus, you know, either think of an activity or just if you're really just hanging out, like there's no need necessarily, um, to have alcohol. So both health reasons, but also like time. And then finally, I just don't really like need it to socialize. So, yeah. And, and I can understand that 
like I, I get why people see some value in it where they're like, oh, it's going to help me socialize. It's a social lubricant. I think that one thing that you touched on, though, is that these people that you're out drinking with, do you have the base foundation of a good friendship, a good relationship where it's like, we don't need this alcohol. We have shared values. And then maybe we're additionally having a couple of drinks or is our entire friendship completely built on us just drinking together. And I think that that's a good touch point to think about because you have a lot of friends that you meet when you're younger and you're great friends because you do a lot of fun activities together. But as you get older, what's important in a friendship may change. And is this person someone who just like a relationship has shared values with you? Or is this someone who your foundation of spending time together is just built off of like the love of alcohol? And like you said, there's definitely a lot of research into the negative effects. So not telling everyone you have to go out and quit drinking, but it's just important to be aware of what happens. And then also just being aware of how you feel after. Like I, I know for me that I have horrible hangovers and I literally hate myself after I drink. So I'm like, all right, let me take this into account versus if someone never has any hangovers and the pros outweigh it, then you can factor that in as well. Yeah, I think like the history of alcohol is also super interesting. Like people definitely drank it, but they also drank like ayahuasca and stuff like that. So it's definitely like a social lubricant. And that so this is like the one thing I will drink is like if I'm at a friend's wedding, ayahuasca. Like, for me to be fully present and there, yeah, I'll just have ayahuasca. <laughs> no, but like I'll, I'll have a drink, but like I find that so crazy. Like that, that's different than like every weekend to talk and like even like sometimes like people are like oh like i need to get like a drink in me to like go talk to that girl a lot of my single friends say that and i'm like really <laughs> like is that really like just just go do that so the whenever like i, I this is like really cool framework that another one of my buddies has whenever like the pros of something are like tautological like you need alcohol so like but like yeah you just kind of need it and they can't articulate it I find that to be pretty ridiculous. Like why, I guess flipping the question is like, why are you drinking every week? Like I can't do, like, is it the taste? Cause like <laughs> that's kind of bullshit. If it's a social lubricant, like, okay. But like, are you really socially lubricated after like two beers? Like what's the threshold? And do you need to be socially lubricated? I, this sounds weird like five days a week. It just, it's kind of a, like, it doesn't, it doesn't add up. And so I find a lot of people drink just because it's like something and an activity to do. Um, whereas like you can do all the same shit. Like you can go to a bar and enjoy the vibe and ask for a club soda and a mocktail. Like I actually have a friend visiting and we did that this entire weekend and that was totally chill. But I, I, I actually think people should flip on it. Like if you're drinking, there should be a reason um, in my, in my opinion, because of the, like both the harmful effects, the you're trading your time and your health. So I just don't really, it's, it's now something that I've went back and forth on. Cause sometimes I'm like, Oh, I really want to be present. And I sometimes feel peer pressure, which is hundred percent a thing. But every time I've done that for like, you know, uh, for a longer period of time, I've just ended up being like, no, I just don't want to. So I, I think you bring a good bottom line, a good summary to the point, which is just like, if you're drinking, know why you're drinking. Don't just do it as a default. It goes back to the living consciously and just being aware of the negative effects. And also, is this the bond that kind of holds your friendships together? 
So just kind of keeping everything in perspective. And yeah. Oh, I wasn't sure if you're going to say something. The no, I just completely agree. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I love that we're on the same page about that. And then the next thing I wanted to talk about is your VC experience. So like you're doing a lot of interesting work. VC is such a cool field. I'd love to hear kind of like what you're up to and maybe some parts of the day to day. Yeah. So, uh, got a VC a little over five years ago. It's been a fun ride. Um, it is different firm to firm. It's kind of a cottage industry that's blown up over the last couple of years. Um, I can, I can talk about the day to day. I actually, uh, VC is a really sexy industry, but I've almost thought about like writing an anonymous blog post. I think it's one of the worst industries to join <laughs> from a risk return and job profile. And I'm happy to go into why, but, um, or answer the day to day. But I actually strongly caution, like if you're in your 20 to 30, unless you, you know, have a gold plated resume and have access to some of the best funds, I would avoid, uh, avoid going into venture. I would love to hear the, the risk reward that you're talking about. Cause I think this could be a good public service announcement for some people. Yeah, like, do you do you ever have like these folks who're like, I don't know, because I went to uh, school with a lot of folks that like ended up doing banking, and they're like, oh yeah, like I can just like go and like look at how much these managing directors make, right? And there's attrition, so there's fall off rate, um, and a lot of people get filtered out. A lot of people don't enjoy it, and then um, your comp relative to other fields, like if you were really talented, for example, you know. Ivy League graduate that went into computer science, uh, you would also get paid extremely well. If you went into sales, you could pay extremely well. And so a lot of people just do it because it's the de facto thing at the moment. There's this effect of like, that's the career at the moment. So in the 90s, it was finance. Uh, now it seems like it's software engineering. And uh, it, there always has to be this thing. And I, I think people don't think about it. But venture, just briefly, um, a lot of firms are really top heavy and run by people who were former operators or partners. It's really hard to make it out. And there's not a lot of fungible skills because you're not an operator. You're basically like a salesperson for capital. And so you actually end up losing tons of managerial skills. You end up losing any sort of execution skills if you were to go back to, into a startup. Um, and you build a great kind of network, but even then it's not as necessarily you know practical, right? Um, because how does someone employ you if you've just been talking to founders for the last couple of years, they don't know what to do with you. Um, and so most people I find when they leave venture, um, end up going back. So they came from finance they go back into finance role. They went to pro came from product, they go back to product role at the same or lower level than they had just stayed in product or finance, et cetera. And so venture is only really worth it. If you can get in at a growing firm early and get shares of equity, or you get it at a top firm and can build your track record. Um, otherwise, I think it is a uh, it's a career trap for for young people. A lot of people get weeded out. There's no fungible skill sets you build, um, and it leads to tends to lead to word worse career outcomes um, long term than just sticking in an operational path or a different career path. You touch on some, touch on some great points there about when you're jumping into a career, kind of take a second and think about it beforehand. Are you just chasing the hype, doing what everyone else is saying? And 
what's really important to you with this career. Because like you said, if you're doing a career, you want to make sure that you're building tangible skills that can help you with uh, your future opportunities. You want to kind of think long term. So I, I think it's very important to not just chase the shiny object, but to think about how this may impact your future and thinking about opportunities you might want to chase later on. Like when we jump into a career, you'll often think you never want to switch, but chances are you're going to be a different person. You might have different values. You don't know how your environment will impact you. So you minimize risk just by creating tangible skills and kind of expanding your horizon. Yeah. So I think, yeah, setting a career foundation, exactly like you said, so you can do different things and uh, venture doesn't really do that. So it's only really just to teach you how to be a venture. The other thing is it doesn't pay that well until you're uh, a partner actually. And so I think a lot of people are surprised that uh, venture pays significantly work is worse than other investing jobs. It um, You're paid in equity, but a lot of times for your, you think about like successful ta- startups that take like 10, 15 years to IPO. And so a lot of times for you to get returns on that, let's say you invested as a partner and you made partner at 40 and your most successful deal, like, yeah, you're, you're getting rich then 10 years later, et cetera. And so some people are able to deal with that. The other thing is like, it's just so hard to get to partner. And then a lot of times like the return profile is the median venture firm performs really poorly. And so you don't get that uh, big hit, uh, you know, that slack, that zoom, et cetera. So I, I think, I caution a lot of people against going into venture, um, even though you know through uh, you know luck, et cetera. I happened to, I had a bunch of lucky circumstances that were you know not within my control. They were just lucky happenstance that I'm now with the fortune of you know five years experience realizing that they were very lucky. One interesting thing that you pointed out was the long term time frame of a lot of these investments, and it makes me think about how both you and with VC, there's long-term thinking involved. Like I know that you, you had some lucky breaks, but you also worked really hard, like related back to FOMO we talked about. You did tons of work while everyone else is kind of out partying and having fun. I wonder how you think about things in the long-term. If you have a certain approach towards long-term thinking and just kind of that general topic, because there's chasing your goals, there's capitalizing on the moment now. And I think it can be tricky for people to think, oh, how long-term should I think? How should I think about long-term? What are some factors I should weigh in? So I'd love to just hear your perspective on the topic. Yeah. Um, One of the most useful things I ever did um, was this idea called the self-authoring program. Uh, I don't know if we've talked about it. But um, goal setting is really weird, right? Because your goals change. And if you just ask someone else your goals, a lot of times they're like resolutions, right? It's like, oh, I want to lose weight. But then like, ah, I'm on vacation, whatever. <laughs> um, the self-authoring program is really interesting because it forces you. It, it's almost like an 8 to 10 hour writing exercise. And it's methodical. So you start with like writing out your values and then writing out what happens if one value comes into conflict with another, how have you historically dealt with that? So I want to go out partying or it's a friend's birthday, but I also have, uh, you know, um, something with my family. How do I actually deal with that? Right? Like that actually is a value judgment, right? Some people will be like, Oh, you know, in reality, it's easy to say, Oh, I'll be there for my family. But a lot of people will say, Oh no, I like, you know, I want to have a great social life. So I, I was there for my friend. And then, 
you know, I saw my parents next week, sort of stuff like this. And it goes through methodically. And then it goes through this future authoring eventually segment where you write out your goals in five years. And it asks you, it's not saying, what do you want to do at work? It'll ask you, like a question in there is like, what's your Sunday look like if you're successful or, and then it distills it then goes through every major relationship in your life. Like how is this relationship better with your parents, uh, with your best friends, with um, your community. And so um, that was really helpful because I did that at like 21, 22 and it ended up being one of the most important things I did. Cause uh, if you do it every year, and reflect on it. It's such an intense exercise versus goal setting in your journal that you can kind of like life gets in the way, whatever that it really forces you to think. And the ultimate thing you start to realize is that your values always come into conflict with each other. Right? So like if you have a value ambition and achievement, um, you're going to have to sacrifice other stuff. If you want to be a great friend to certain select people, you're going to have to, and there's no free lunch and there's sacrifices in life and that it doesn't even have to, I think a lot of people like the meme is or the, the, the frequent thing is like, Oh, like, yeah, I sacrifice most to achieve. But the people I know who it may not be in their careers, but they have, um, you know, great, um, you know, hobbies, for example, and are really fulfilled by that realized, Hey, I don't want to be like a senior director at like, 35, I want to have a really holistic personal life. And they sacrificed and made these trade-offs. And so I think that's a great exercise. And that forced me to think long-term and made me articulate like uncomfortable with saying no uh, to a lot of things and just realizing it's normal for things to come into conflict, right? Like my desire to be fun and present with my friends is definitely there. But like we talked about, like, I value time and different things on weekends. And so I can make that choice. What I find is a lot of people are very uncomfortable with day-to-day to week sacrifices. And because they haven't articulated their values and clearly thought through those conflicts, they end up having their past or, you know, having specific events guide them versus being, again, going back to that intentional word. And so that exercise really made me more long-term oriented of, but also comfortable with making short-term sacrifices to live the type of life I wanted. There are some awesome points there. Uh, And just to highlight a a couple quick ones and then jump into the bigger one. I think you talked about how you did this at 21, 22. And I just want to point out to everyone that success compounds over time. So the younger you are, where you can reach success, where you can form your clear goals, the easier it will be to reach those goals and get what you want. And then additionally, another quick note, we talked about how you form this very clear vision. The more clear your vision is, the more you will be able to take action to get there, the more motivated you will be. And the easier it will be to find opportunities that support your vision. So being able to find your vision early on, if not today, sometime soon, just so you can get there. And then we also talked about how goals shift over time. So form your vision, but don't get too rigid with it because you can get where you want. You just might have to get there a different way than you think. And then the other point that I was going to touch on is... You hit a very good point that I think a lot of people don't often talk about, which is 
a lot of people feel that they're clear on their values, but almost no one talks about what happens when your values come in conflict. Because the truth is that life requires compromises. Sooner or later, you're going to have some values that clash. And that's important to know in this situation, what am I going to do? What would I do? And then even after thinking through it, the reality is you won't know what you're going to do until you actually are in that situation. But thinking through it ahead of time is very helpful. So you could decide what you logically, intentionally, consciously want to do versus kind of getting caught up in the moment and being very reactive and emotional. Yeah. And I think something I've started to realize like that is a little different about, you know, people who do self-improvement podcasts are really intentional is that a lot of people don't even know what they want. And so that question, for example, like, what do you want your ideal Sunday in five years is so daunting. Like, I don't fucking know. But in reality, it's like a chance to um, think about, you know, what sorts of habits and what type of person do I want to be? Even if you don't have like a clearly articulate, I want to have this title at work. I want to be, you know, uh, you know, excellent at playing the piano and really enjoy or be a great tennis player uh, just on the side because I enjoy playing tennis. You don't have to have that articulation of your goals necessarily, but just reflecting on it, like that choice of like, um, I can go see my friends or my family one weekend. What type of person do I want to be? And the thing you'll start to realize is like those, um, when they come to flat conflict, you'll feel almost self judgment, right? Um, of, Oh wait, like, do I really want to be this person that works all the time? Do I really want to be this person that only has a couple friends or so like taking the example of like, you can go see your family or you can hang out with friends. Like there's no wrong choice, right? It's a values judgment, but being the habit of like, okay, I'm a particularly like, you know, friends oriented person and I want to build a sense of community. So unless my parents need something urgent, you know, I'm going to see them once every two months, then for Christmas. And that's the kind of relationship we have. We are very close and I'm fine with it. I'm going to go out, you know, there and situations depend on happening, but over time they compound. And so even if you don't have these like strong articulations of like, or very explicit statements of your goals, um, laying out those values, like you said, and just building habits where you act towards one versus another and having that clarity to make those decisions is really, um, yeah. And one good thing that you pointed out was a lot of times when we're thinking through these values and how they come in conflict, we'll have some self-judgment like, oh, is this really my value? I think this is a very important self-awareness moment to kind of do introspection and be like, why am I judging myself? Why is this my value? Like a lot of people, like you said, they may feel very selfish for prioritizing friends over, say, the family. But the truth is we have needs as a human to have community. We feel like we need people to connect with. And it's the idea of not judging yourself, but just kind of recognizing and accepting. I know that that's a very big point in mindfulness, which is recognizing or being aware of your thoughts without judging them, just kind of peering in and seeing who you are. So for people doing self-reflection, like do what uh, Sean was saying and just kind of analyze your goals, your values, and then catch yourself when you may be judging them and dig into that a little bit. And then related to that, the next thing that I wanted to jump into is we talked a little bit about the risk and reward of going into, say, VC work. 
I think that risk and reward is something that you have a particularly interesting perspective on. I know it's a huge part of your work. I'd love to hear about how you think of risk reward, if there's any specific factors you kind of think through, and if you look for any specific sort of opportunities, both in work and in life. Uh, yeah, it's pretty broad. I think the best book on this is uh, Any Duke's Thinking in Bets. It's become really popular. Uh, but the idea is to like weigh out different probabilities. Um, it's really different, for example, thinking in a financial portfolio versus thinking of your own health, right? They're just completely different domains. Um, but the idea of like, you know, weighing different cases probabilistically and just that uh, has been a really, really good approach. So, um, you know, I'm less likely to seek risk in um, like health or, you know, if I'm getting surgery, <laughs> uh, even in financial risk, I tend to be a little bit, um, yeah, I think like financial risk, I tend to be somewhere in between like taking asymmetric shots that could work out and, um, being pretty consistent and investing in an index portfolio. Um, but yeah, I think it, it, it depends on which domain and stuff like that. And I it's always interesting. I learn from a lot of people who I think are like and admire people who are able to take more risk than me. Yeah. And that reminds me of, say, with financials. <clears throat> Is it Nassim Taleb who talks about like the barbell approach with like maybe 80-20? Where, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I... Is, is that kind of what you do? And if so, do you want to like tell people like certain amount towards conservative stuff, certain amount towards um, moonshots or whatever it is? Yeah. I have like an emergency fund with like six months cash, um, probably 65 to 75%, 75%. I got a little overweight in 2021 <laughs> of, you know, my uh, dollar cost averaging just goes into, you know, stocks and the S and P and then the rest is, you know, um, weird crypto shit and um, stocks um, or like, you know, so like selectively buying. Oh, OK, I think this company is really interesting. So uh, we'll just buy and, you know, learn from that. No, I love it. And I think it applies both to finances as well as life. We're kind of riffing off the 80-20 rule, kind of spending like 80% of your time or resources towards the more sure thing, something that you know, will provide you value such as say like the S and P and then you maybe have 10% or 20% for moonshots. Like in life too, you want to leave some small room for experimentation. Maybe you're learning a new skill or trying a new strategy because that may take off. But going back to the thinking and bets that you mentioned, um, you might want to spend 80% towards the more sure thing because people will often think to themselves on a decision they have to make, should I do A or B? And they're looking for the right answer. But what people don't realize is that everything in life is just probability. It's a bet. And everything just has risk and reward, cost and benefit. So when you're thinking, what should I do? Instead, you should be thinking, what are the odds that this result is going to happen? Am I okay with those odds? Because they'll never be 100%. There is no right answer. Yeah, and are you okay with the downside? And I think a lot of, but and it depends on different things. Like a lot of people fixate too much on the downside in, in certain cases. But um, yeah, I think there's this really crazy study. Um, Morgan Housel talks about it, like psychology of money. It was like they actually figured out like the financially optimal portfolio if you were like anywhere from like twenty to thirty five is to double up on leverage, and then just continue to invest stocks because even if you get wiped out, you'll actually just 
gain more money over the long term. <laughs> and no one would invest that way, right? Because they wouldn't be okay like getting all their shit wiped out and then just going back and taking more uh leverage and debt on. So like it's just interesting, but um yeah, it depends. Uh kind of the, the mathematically optimal way is different from, you know, what someone's willing to personally tolerate. And for the risk reward thought process, if not related to investing, but just kind of in making life decisions, do you have any advice for people as far as weighing risks, how to be aware of risks and being aware of the upsides? I know that risk and reward is very contextual to each of us, but I'm wondering if you have advice for spotting risks, mitigating risks, and maybe being aware of the upsides and comparing it. Spotting risks. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to think through, like, unless there's a specific situation. Mm-hmm. Like, spotting financial risk is different from, like, personal risk is different from... It, it just depends on the domain completely. Yeah, and I, I think that that's a good bottom line where it's, like, whatever you're doing, the risk and reward is contextual to this situation. And the more you know about the situation, the more you will know about potential risks and rewards. And then keeping in mind some completely out of left field things that may not happen, but are still possible. So trying to take time to brainstorm all the possible risks, all the possible rewards, how likely each of them are to happen. And then how do you feel about those two when you compare them? Yeah. For the VC work, I feel like it requires you to really be on top of kind of interesting trends. You need to be aware of what's going on in tech. Do you have any advice for people on how to kind of keep their foot in the water, kind of just staying on top of everything? Because we live in such a high data, high volume world, and it can be hard to separate signal from noise at times. Yeah, I think you have to find. Um, it's weird. Like there was this uh, tweet I saw, which was like, um, "I'm almost aware of major like paradigm shifting or world changing events six to eight months before they happen because I follow relevant personalities on Twitter." Um, so you're inter- interested in like you what's happening in the Ukraine war? You can find people that are you know. Um, have degrees in the field, like are experts, et cetera, and read up on that. And so I found that um, versus just Googling, finding people who are really like uh, either practitioners um, or experts in their fields um, have been the most useful. And I think um, balancing that out, right? Because a lot of experts in certain fields, for example, in medicine tend to be like very, very risk off. And so balancing that out with a, a bunch of different perspectives from people is the best way. And then, um, despite kind of the mistrust of experts, et cetera, I found it an incredibly useful way. So if you want to get up to speed on, um, you know, AI, for example, you might follow, follow Andrew, uh, uh, Ng from, uh, Stanford and he'll, his kind of content feed and what he retweets will set you down the rabbit hole and find some people you might balance that out. Um, but that's typically how I stay up on things. And then, the other thing that was like interesting is like if you're thinking about trends, it depends. Like a lot of people, like when they're thinking about like for example trends, they really want to be like mobile, 
like in 2013, 2014, like before it got big, but like not that early. Like we tend to be really, really early in different trends and stuff like that. And so um, before even they get popularized by like um, the average person in society um, or even average technologist. And in that case, it's a different question where you don't want to take the median opinion. You want to find people that are aligning with new paradigms. Um, and so that also tends to be another thing is like, if you talk to people at the cutting edge who are thinking about things in a fundamentally different way, it's different than talking to your average software developer. For example, if you're just thinking about, you know, different developer tools and stuff like that. So that is something I would also say is like for generally building expertise and keeping up on trends, like that approach of finding experts and relevant people and going down that rabbit hole through what they're reading is helpful. But if you're really trying to like predict the future, the worst thing you can do is take the median opinion uh, because it almost always tends to be wrong. Yeah, it's funny. I remember one of the first self-improvement books I read was 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. And I think one of the first lines in there is about how if there's something that everyone is doing, you should probably question it. So I think that that's a good note on how we should all be independent thinkers, critical thinkers, take advice with a grain of salt, even what you're hearing now. And use your own judgment on if something is helpful in your situation or not. Advice is very contextual to the person. So what worked for someone who you're following online, they're super successful, may have worked because of their situation. You need to apply the advice to your situation and see how it might work for you. So just think about advice critically. And then you should also be able to look into experts in the field and then you can get a pulse from them because they spend their whole lives immersing themselves in these fields and they know what's going on. So you can kind of get shortcuts by tapping into their knowledge as well. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great summary of things. There's also this great quote I love, which is like, the best way to get awful advice, I think it's Naval. Like the best way to get awful advice is to ask everyone. <laughs> that like you just get no advice, right? Because everyone has a different fucking opinion, and then all of them are equally convicted, and it's not. Yeah, it's not helpful. Yeah, it's it's funny. I remember when I was younger, starting my first businesses. You don't know much yet, so you're often seeking external advice, and everyone gives you contradicting advice, so you kind of get lost. And then as you become a more seasoned entrepreneur, you realize you got to kind of figure things out for yourself. So get advice, but then at the end, you got to kind of take your own action, trust your own gut kind of thing. Exactly. Another thing on VC work, I know that in VC, you're dealing with a lot of different companies, you're working with a lot of different founders and people in these companies. And it seems like that requires building good relationships and staying in touch with everyone. Do you have any advice for how to build these close relationships, how to maintain them, how to stay in contact with everyone? I think that's something I'd be better at. I don't know. I'm not, I, w- I wouldn't say I'm like the go-to expert on that. I have a lot of friends who are much better and more thoughtful about staying in touch. I would say I've kind of de facto ended up being able to stay in touch with people because my job allows me to go wherever and stay in touch with people. So I've, if I'm on the West Coast for work, I can see friends in San Francisco, LA and Seattle. If I'm on the East Coast, I can see people in New York and Boston and DC, uh, you know, potentially even Miami. So it ends up being like, because when you travel a lot for work, you're able to meet up with friends a lot. And generally being a digital nomad, also it's been interesting over the last couple um, months is that now other people are st- starting to, even if their, you know, work job isn't, you know, full remote work, 
your boss is kind of okay going for like a week or two without. And so some people, you know, you tend to have work travel trips where you work during the day and then hang out a place. And that's been happening a lot more. So I think as a function of having a job that's kind of been remote, I've been able to stay in touch with people, but I'm certainly not, I would say, um, great at it. I think relationship building as a whole, you know, other domain of how do you build that relationship for staying in touch? That's a, that's a very different thing. And two things on that one, I think that you highlight a good point where you found a way to get some synergy in your life, have different areas reinforce each other where you're traveling for work, but you can also use that to capitalize on it and stay in touch with friends you may have not seen in a while. And that's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently too where the more you can have synergy in the different areas of your life, the more you can form this self-propelling flywheel where momentum builds up. And that's kind of just a good framework or thought process to have just in the back of your mind. How can I reinforce the areas in my life to push each other forwards? How can I have this self-propelled flywheel? So just letting people kind of dwell on that. And then... I love that you mentioned that the relationship building and communication is something that you're maybe not the best on, something you could work on. Because I think it's important for people to see that, one, it's important to recognize your blind spots or areas for improvement because you can't improve what you think you're the best at. You can't learn what you already know, quote unquote. And then additionally, I like it because... I I like to point out how everyone's human at the end of the day. A lot of times people will listen to podcasts, watch YouTube videos, and they'll think, oh, this person's super successful. Like I can't do what they do. But you're mentioning things that you're maybe not the best at. And you're human too. And I'm wondering if any thoughts come to mind as far as maybe some failures you've had, tough situations, or other things you're maybe not the best at, just things that would highlight hey, we're all human at the end of the day. We're all similar. Yeah, I think I could do a better job of staying in touch with people. That's certainly a fault with me. Uh, And I tend to be pretty busy with work. And then even when I'm not at work, in my own head. And so a lot of times not being fully present with people when I'm off the clock um, is really hurt. The other thing is like, I mean, you see this with me as friends. Like there's a lot of people where... um, I think being a a better friend and inviting that into my life, I think a lot of times I'm so in my own head that a lot of time, and a lot of people, you know, I think successful people are like that. Uh, You know, not saying this way that I'm successful because of that, or I am successful. It's just a lot of people who tend to be type A are like that. And I'm certainly uh, like just the ability to turn off is something that I wish in terms of big failures. I think a lot of times your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. So I kind of always, try and make stuff happen through scrappiness and hustle. Um, but the downside is like at least a lot of anxiety, at least a lot of failed efforts. Uh, um, and so those are certainly, you know, things where I've had, you know, um, times where jobs I've had that didn't suit that skill set didn't work out for me. I've had friendships where, um, you know, people didn't, really appreciate that or that had downside effects and were like, I came across as way too tense, et cetera, and stuff like that. And then people didn't want to invite that uh, into their friendship circles or their lives. And so it, it all is kind of, I think your greatest strength can be your greatest weakness. And for me, that's, I feel like uh, now, you know, you know, turning, you know, like looking into my thirties is certainly um, an issue. 
Or re- it's not an issue, in realization, yeah. Yeah, and you touch on a really good point, which is our greatest strength is our greatest weakness and how a lot of t- type A people tend to be overthinkers, be very go, go, go. And what I want to point out is that people think of decisions and traits. Is this good? Is this bad? But just how we mentioned how everything is risk-reward, everything is both good and bad in different ways. And you need to be able to recognize both sides. Nothing is completely one. And a lot of type A people, they have this personality that pushes them to achieve, to reach their goals. But it comes at a cost, like you said, of being extremely anxious. And it reminds me of the quote, what got you here won't get you there, where you may have these traits that teach you how to get the results you want, but you're going to need a new set of traits to actually let yourself enjoy the success. If you're constantly chasing new things, are you ever really here being happy with the life you have? And the golden ticket, I'd say, is learning how to do both, chase goals while enjoying them. But being able to have the self-awareness of these things I do, what are the costs that they have on me, and what is the reward, and kind of just analyzing the full spectrum of things and seeing if you're okay with it. The other thing is you mentioned like going into your 30s that like this is something you were thinking about. I'm, I'm wondering if you have any other reflections going into your 30s, either just random thoughts or maybe new approaches towards life. I know that we talked about in the past, like as we get older, sometimes our values shift. Sometimes we spend our time doing different things. Sometimes we want to double down even more. I'd love to hear a little bit about any thoughts you have around that and just reflections you had as you approached the thirties. Yeah, I think I can bring up a few and then we can talk about which ones you want to, I mean, we talked about a few kind of privately, but um, the biggest thing is like friends. I think it's weird, right? Cause like we've hung out a bunch in person. Like I actually have a great friend group in Boston. Like you haven't even met um, and stuff like that. And I've been fortunate to meet you, but those relationships have really changed and there's nothing wrong, et cetera. It just is really different than what they once were. And it's sad, but it's also just life. And so that's like a bit, a big thing. I think uh, a lot of people can resonate with that of, uh, you know, friends value shifting and, and there's nothing, a lot of times the weirdest thing, it's kind of like, um, two people collectively outgrowing a relationship is really hard. Um, and a lot of times that can breed either resentment, et cetera. And so you have to consciously figure out how do you approach new relationships and your friendships, right? Just like friendships in your late twenties as people shift and change priorities is really different. I don't know. You, you both you and I, I think have, have talked about how difficult that is. Like, um, I have a great kind of friend, uh, group, uh, but it's just been, different, you know, as things have changed. And so I still want to spend time with a lot of those folks, but it's a lot of times, sometimes like the, I, I feel the most alone, you know, with, uh, you can feel the most alone with people that you've known for a long time. That's certainly one thing that I've been thinking about. And then there's a bunch of stuff where like, I've actually stopped apologizing for things I love doing, like working, um, and, you know, weird quirky activities. I like enjoy like going to concerts and stuff like that and really embraced it. So um, but, but yeah, I think that's been the biggest thing that's top of mind is that's one value that's just kind of dealing with. And then, then going into my thirties, you know, I would still want to be focused on work and, you know, being the best person I can be in terms of self-improvement, et cetera. So, 
uh, and then making more time for like hobbies and stuff that I enjoy that I wasn't able to, cause I was, you know, uh, working hard and, and traveling and doing different stuff in my, my twenties. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you really focused on setting yourself up for a life of opportunity in your twenties. You grinded really hard. I know you and I will both run into each other at a co-working space on the weekends. Sometime we'll get there together, just hang out and get stuff done. And you put in the work up front. And now that you've reached a certain level where you can ensure future opportunity, you're starting to do that perspective shift where you're like, now that I have this quote unquote success, I can now prioritize hobbies and fulfillment. So it's like setting yourself up for a good basis and then slowly climbing up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah, it's really hard though, right? Um, like you'll read these like retirement subreddits of people that get like rich really suddenly and retire and they're like, don't know how to retrain their lives to like enjoy it. And so that's been something I've been just reflecting on is um, I think like between the ages of 24 and 29, I worked probably 80 to 90% of every Sunday and weekend. And the weird thing is I, at the time thought I was sacrificing to the first three months were hard, but then I realized no one really does shit. Like the worst <laughs> thing I'm giving up is like brunch, like Sunday brunch and like errands. Um, and so, and I didn't drink already. So like I was already waking up early on Sunday. So I was like, Oh, I just got my errands done and worked from like probably like 10 to, to 10 to five or 10 to six and then, um, chill the rest of the evening. So it, that's another one where like nowadays I don't work on Sundays. Sometimes I still probably work like 60 to 75% of Sundays, but the Sundays I'm not, I'm like, Oh shit. Like <laughs> this feels fucking weird. So, um, I haven't found a good balance there. The other thing is like different is like, um, as you get a moderate level of success, you get comfortable and I think you can get complacent. And for people that are, have an internal locus of control, um, that is really uncomfortable. Cause like it previously was like, Oh, if you don't wake up early, if you don't work out, if you don't do this, like you kind of get to that mentality of like, I need to keep, need to go. And then when you wake up and you've actually like accomplished a lot and you go back through your old journals or your goal setting that you read when you're 22 and you've accomplished almost all of it, you're like, wait, what, what's next? And that is actually going back to like changes in your thirties is like, that's actually harder. Um, it's much, much, much harder. Like, cause once you're in scarcity, you kind of just need to like, like, all right, fuck, I need to like, it's kind of like if, <laughs> the way I would look into it is like, it's very different. Like if you are designing like a weight loss program for someone that's like 300 pounds, that's very different than for uh, someone who, for example, is like you who works out a lot and is in shape. You need to think about very intentionally about like, are you shooting your short twitch model muscles? Are you training for a particular sport or what are you trying to accomplish here? And um, I feel like as you kind of go up ladder, you, it gets much more you need to be much more precise about what you want versus just signing up for uh you know just generally like moving up into the right like oh i'll just you know do crossfit or i'll just do this you're like oh is that actually what i want or i'll just work a ton and um you really have to think about it. It's so true, man. And it really goes back to the awareness and the introspection, knowing yourself, because when your initial goal is to make money, there's so many ways to make money, but there's very few ways to bring the fulfillment that you need 
to your life because it's so contextual to you. And the more you can do this introspection, the more you can kind of get ahead of the curve because sooner or later, you're going to reach these goals you have if you work hard and you're going to have that level of existential crisis where what comes now. But if you can, like we talked about earlier, kind of get clear on your goals and your vision, you can kind of tie the two together. Maybe you have this passion that you can start doing on the side and then you make the hop once you're financially independent. Maybe you can find a way to start making money with it so that way you can reach financial independence earlier. And just getting clear on what your future needs are, because like you said, the harder part is going to be like really digging deep and being like, who am I once I remove all these needs of scarcity? Yeah, I think that's that's really spot on. And the touching back on the the friendship thing, I think that that's another good point too, where you talked about how as you kind of embraced your quirky self, like you were way happier, way more fulfilled. And at least in my opinion, and from the people I talked to, as we get older, the more you can embrace the life you want to live, the person you truly are, the happier and more fulfilled you are. And like we touched on earlier, it can be kind of tricky where you have all these friends who you love, but they might not necessarily match your values. So I, I'd love to hear a little bit about, if you don't mind digging into it, the internal struggles related to you growing and your friends maybe not necessarily growing in the same way and you kind of having to think about what to do in that situation. Yeah, I mean, it's still going on, right? Like it's just life, people grow in different ways. And so I don't think I've dealt with that entirely. Um, it's still an area like I'm looking for advice on. So um the one thing I will say is like living authentically yourself is kind of fucking awesome. <laughs> like I find like the people who I would not trade places with in my twenties are people who have lived and then have a ton of regrets or um don't feel like um it's different not knowing or you know learning and realizing you made missteps and then realizing, okay, now I'm in a better place to do this. But people who truly did things uh, for people other than themselves, um, you know, did a lot. Of, you made a lot of personal choices for that. Um, sometimes you have to, right? There's, uh, you know, family, friends, et cetera, stuff that comes up. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm still struggling with that. Yeah, and, and I guess that that's a good point where it's a constant struggle we go throughout our whole lives because we are always changing and everyone else is always changing. So there'll always be some level of conflict. And back to you grinding through your 20s and now in your 30s and shifting perspectives, would you recommend to other people to follow the approach you have? Do you have a specific framework that you were happy with as far as like working in your 20s and joining your 30s? I'm wondering what current you would advise to people who might be in their early or mid 20s, how to maybe approach life and why? Um, if you're in this book, there's a great book called How to Live by Derek Sivers. It's actually on my desk right now. Oh, dude, I love Derek Sivers. Yeah, yeah so he has this book. It's really cool. It's like, uh, it's a really tough book to describe, but it basically is like, okay, if you're like an artist, he has like almost like a poem-esque thing of like how you would live or if you're a careerist, how you'd live. And so uh, I think it's interesting because if you force yourself to read that book, you realize like, oh, I'm more like this um, type of person. Um, I don't know. For, for me, I do think the fundamental thing is like, 
even though in your tw- like setting the foundation for success is really like helpful. So cr- general career advice and stuff like that. But like my general perspective is that people don't want to sacrifice and they don't want to make tough choices. And the reality is like not even like career exceptionalism. Not only does anything, it's not even risk. It's literally like if you want to have like an incredible um, group of friends, you have to be a group of friends. Like if you want to be in great shape, like you can't eat like shit. Like, you know what I mean? Like all this stuff, like (laughs) very obvious that people know, but are really uncomfortable with or struggle with discipline. And that's certainly something, but I think cultivating discipline and then the ability to sacrifice are the two biggest things. Cause once you have that, you can kind of direct your life wherever you want to go as long as your values change. But I don't know. I'm kind of like every good thing. It doesn't even have to be careers. Like if you want a great friend, if you want a great relationship with your parents, like you, if you, if you're just doing your own thing and not, you know, there for, for example, your parents, your family, et cetera, like that's a choice you're making. That is a sacrifice, right? For your own ego or for your own goals or whatever. But everyone just kind of lives life without assuming like, Oh, okay. Like I'll generally sacrifice more because I'm studying for the LSAT or grad school entry exams or whatever. But yeah, that's because you have to, um, and you made this choice, but like accompanying more like that of like periods where like you can sacrifice more into just your everyday life of like, uh, I think is something like I would get comfortable with because otherwise, like I'm just shocked by like people are like, it's kind of this thing like, Oh, I don't have time or I can't sacrifice for like, um, and then like you actually do a time on it and they're like watching Netflix for 12 hours a week. And they like, Oh, I'm so, <laughs> so like, it, that's the craziest thing to me. It's just like, yeah, like I don't really watch that much TV because I've just realized it was something like I didn't want to do. Cause I would rather socialize with people. Um, and then if I wasn't, I would, you know, pick up another thing to do or work or, um, you know, play tennis, play the piano or something like that. But like, I, I don't know. I think that's the biggest realization is people just don't want to sacrifice and building the ability and tolerance and appetite for sacrifice in all aspects of life. And then discipline is, are the two traits that have served, uh, me, me well and other people I admire really well. Yeah. Bouncing off of that, I think it's important for people to reflect on what their actions are saying. You tell yourself these things in your head. Oh, I want to get in great shape. I want to start a business. What are your actions saying? If you are not putting time and effort towards something, then either it's not a priority or you're kind of lying to yourself. Um, I've had that in past situations when I was younger where I kept telling myself something, telling myself something, and then I would force myself to examine my actions. So I think it's a good wake up call to for all of us to just kind of be more aware of what are we actually doing, do a time audit like you just heard and kind of get some insight into where you're actually putting your time, energy and money. And then another thing is like was mentioned, most people aren't willing to make the sacrifices. It all goes back to what we were saying about contradicting and conflicting values where you're going to have to make trade-offs. That's the inherent fact of life. And are you willing to make the trade-offs to get what you want? The way I view it is that whatever goal you have, there's a certain amount of work, effort, and uncomfortableness that's between you and that goal. And every time you take a little bit of... You get a little bit of work done, you're taking a little bit off your plate. You're that much closer. And the reality is, are you willing to put in that work and face this uncomfortableness 
to get there. And I think one of the challenges for a lot of people is that goals are very distant, they're very vague, versus pain is very immediate and very right now. So it's much more clear and powerful to us. But if you can kind of push through that and see the long term, you can see that this pain is not as great as you think it is. Things are often worse in our head than we think they are. And the more clear you can be on your vision, on your goals, like we mentioned earlier, the more present it can seem versus some distant thing. So bringing your goals and vision closer, making them more clear, and realizing that the pain in between you and your goals is not as bad as you think it is. Once you get adjusted to the uncomfortableness, it's really not that bad. Like Sean mentioned, he was working pretty much every Sunday for who knows how long. And at first, it may be a little tough. But once you embrace it as a lifestyle, it's really not that bad. It's really just our mindset that is stopping us from taking the action we need. And related to relationships, the next thing I'd like to jump into is relationships. I think that you and your girlfriend have a a great relationship. And I, I know that one interesting thing you were telling me about last night was when you two are both older and you're in, say, your 30s and you're both holding crying babies, it's like, hey, we're in this together forever now. And kind of thinking about life in maybe two different phases where it's like, now we're kind of doing our thing in the future, we're more together, kind of thinking about things long term. I'd love if you could like maybe riff off of that, that story you were telling me and just kind of the thought process behind it. Oh yeah. The thought process is really simple. Uh, kids really change things. So before we have kids, you know, you should try and live life uh, if you can. There wasn't anything more complicated than that, but um, no, it helps when you have a, uh, you know, partner who's aligned with on that with you on that. So, nothing more more to that. But uh, yeah, so it, it really is just that everyone I've seen uh, from my cousins and friends who've had kids, it, things really change. So, um, yeah, I guess trying to enjoy life to them. It, it is. I'm sure that adds its own rewards and joys and stuff like that. Um, but if you want to have kids and stuff like that, then it ends up being um, different. One good point that underlies that is, like you mentioned, just kind of a shared vision, shared goal, where when you're with someone, you want to make sure that you have the same view on life or at least similar enough, because you're going to be with this person forever growing with them. You want to make sure that you're growing in the same direction. And another thing that you've kind of touched on with this, uh, maybe with me in a previous conversation, is just how you both view your relationship as super long term. Where, again, doing things in the long term, you're like, hey, we're going to be together forever. If you're going to be traveling the country or the world or things like that, your girlfriend's super understandable. So I, I think that that's another like super helpful point is you both have the shared goal and also just a long-term vision of what's possible with you two. Yeah, exactly. Is there anything else that you think helps in you guys having a great relationship just either common values or just you be both being independent or anything else that kind of helps you to succeed, be good matches, things like that. Uh, Oh, I just think it's really common values. Um, And then how we deal with conflict. Um, And with the, yeah, with, with the conflict, how, how do you guys go about dealing when you have conflict? Usually one of us will get pretty irritated and then um, we'll talk about things pretty logically, which is <laughs> uh, good. There's not a lot of yelling. It's more just like um, 
pretty cohesive, like logical, like, okay, this is how I feel. All right. What are we going to do about it? Stuff like that. There are times though, like, and I'm, I'm terrible at this. I'm always so solution oriented, uh, that, you know, <laughs> she just wants to like, uh, chat about stuff. And I'm like, Oh, what about this? Is this, she's like, I just want you to listen. So, uh, stuff like that. Yeah. That, that's a good point where it's like, Hey, good communication, make sure to talk about what's going on. And also like we are humans, we have emotion. Sometimes you just need to be there to listen for your partner and kind of like help them through things. Exactly. The other thing I wanted to touch on is like you doing all this traveling. Like I know you're basically a digital nomad. I'd love to hear like why you do that, what kind of value it brings to your life as opposed to just being in one spot. So I think uh, it's really fun in the sense like it flips your friendships where you have friends in like a lot of different places. Um, it has mean like I've traveled quite a bit. I think I've been to like 30 countries since like 2017, 2018, maybe more now, maybe 35 or something like that. Um, that's been really, really fun and enriching. Um, it is weird though. Like you kind of start to realize you value community more. Um, and so I've been lucky to like live in one city most of the time, uh, and then split my time between two. So that usually takes up 50% of my time and then travel the rest, uh, the other 50%. And, um, I think with digital uh, nomadism, the hardest thing is is maintaining community now. And you see these people who are working remote, they're like, oh, I missed going to the office. Not because I like love the office. It's, you know, it's socialization, stuff like that. So that is certainly something. I think the biggest thing it teaches you is like how to be alone and how to enjoy doing things alone. Um, and so that's really helped me where, um, yeah, I think the benefits are you you hopefully you, you you know you get used to being alone enjoy like uh being alone and doing things yourself and then i think um you end up traveling and experiencing a bunch of different things at once i think the downsides are you like you see this right like you know uh it's really hard to build relationships right it takes like a lot of time and effort and so um that ends up being a definite downside that i've like kind of not loved where you end up having a lot of good friends and all your great friends tend to be spread out. And so like, if you're in, you know, Austin for the fifth time, like they have their own lives, right? Even if it's your like best friend from college, like if you're visiting like once, Oh, you're there for that weekend. Like you'll catch up, but are you there for like five times a year? If you're not, if you're like, you know, it kind of becomes whatever. So it ends up being t difficult to navigate friendships and, and actually and it, it just ends up being really, really difficult to build community. Um, so it, it changes from more of like, you have a bunch of friends in different places versus like um, go to people in a single city. Yeah. And, and it is the truth of the matter that, relationships do take a certain amount of, I guess, like time together, a certain amount of communication and people do understand like busy people get busy people, but it does help to be able to connect a lot more when possible. And I think one thing that you pointed out though, is the time alone. I think that even if you're not traveling, that's something that people should really invest in being able to step away from everything, spend some time alone and really be comfortable with yourself you are the person that you're going to spend your entire life with. So you should get to know yourself well. You should love yourself. It sounds silly to say, but you should be your best friend on some level. 
So at least in my opinion, I think we should all take a little bit more alone time just to be comfortable with ourselves. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And to wrap up, I'd just like to ask a, a couple more questions. The first question I'd like to ask is, what does success mean to you and why? I know that success can be very different for a lot of us. For someone, it might be ex- being extremely rich. For someone, it might be the best, being the best artist possible. I'm wondering what your definition is at the moment. Uh, I think... Uh freedom to spend have my time as I want want and um being a top decile uh in my career and a top decile friend and human being uh both in terms of character um I think um the core stoic values uh, I subscribe to stoicism so it's uh wisdom justice courage and moderation and so making sure I'm, I'm progressing on all those uh, and, and practicing those, uh, making sure I am great at my career because generally uh, that works well with buying yourself freedom of time eventually uh, <laughs> and make sure I'm being a great friend um, to the people around me. I love that, man. Yeah, I, I think that those are all worthwhile things that provide a lot of value to our lives as well as others. And the last thing I'd like to say is just, do you have any last minute parting advice, words of wisdom or anything else you'd like to share with the audience? Uh, no, I think this was great. Thanks. Uh, thanks a ton for putting it together. Yeah, man, this was a lot of fun. Looking forward to doing another round again in the future. And I'll talk to you later. Sounds great, man. All right. Cheers. All right. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode and got some value from it. If you want to hear more content on decision-making, thriving in uncertainty, eliminating ambiguity and regret minimization, as well as other similar topics, feel free to check out my YouTube channel and my website, letsgetreckless.com. And definitely reach out and let me know what you thought about this episode. Improving the show is a continuous process And your feedback helps me make this better over time and focus more on the content that's most helpful for you. Have a great day and I'll see you in the next episode.